Shalom and marhaba, and welcome to the Israel Policy Pod. I'm Neri Zilber, a journalist based in Tel Aviv and a policy advisor to Israel Policy Forum. In today's episode, we're going to unpack what just happened in the West Bank over the past two days in the wake of the major Israeli military operation into the Janine refugee camp, the most significant IDF operation in the West Bank for some two decades, with two returning guests slash friends. Israel Policy Forum's very own Israel Fellow, Nimrod Novik, who for many years was a senior advisor to the late Shimon Peres, and Ibrahim Dalalsha, the head of the Horizon Center think tank and a longtime advisor at the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem. But first, a few thoughts from me. So just FYI, we're recording this Wednesday afternoon, and this is in truth a semi-emergency podcast given events. We had planned on likely focusing this week on the other big news coming out of Israel, and that's of course the continued judicial overhaul push by the Netanyahu government. So just a recap of what has happened on this front in recent days. First, the governing coalition pushed through in Knesset committee a bill to limit the power of the Supreme Court to strike down government decisions and, crucially, government appointments on the grounds of reasonability, i.e. that they're unreasonable. First reading in the full Knesset plenum is mooted for next week, and possible full passage may happen later in July, as we mentioned on last week's podcast. The ramifications of what this actually means in practice, I hope to get into next week, but best I can tell, in extremis, it may allow the government to not only appoint whoever it wants to key civil service posts, but also to fire whoever it wants. Hint, hint, the attorney general. Big picture, it's a key plank of the overall judicial overhaul the government had been planning. Only now, Again, as mentioned last week, it's being done slowly, cleverly, bit by bit, and with a full complement of gaslights marking the way. Second, as a direct result of the above, the protest movement has stepped up its demonstrations and disruptions on the streets. A major demo took place at Ben Gurion International Airport Monday afternoon, with some fifteen to 30,000 people showing up to, well, disrupt things. The scenes were incredible. Uh, Some 50 people were arrested, which may be a record since the start of the protest movement, and organizers have vowed that things will escalate. Outside coalition members' homes, outside the Knesset, outside key infrastructure hubs and highways. It was a good initial showing at Ben Gurion and coupled with a larger number than what we've seen in previous weeks at this past Saturday's traditional Kaplan Street demo in Tel Aviv, may hopefully be a signal of a greater or renewed mobilization. Which brings us finally to the third facet of all this. It was telling that all of the above happened on Monday and into Tuesday, as IDF soldiers were engaged in street-by-street fighting and a major operation in the West Bank. The protest movement was criticized in some quarters for still going ahead with the Ben Gurion demo, while quote-unquote our boys we're still fighting. The protest leaders argued, for their part, and correctly, that the government itself was still moving ahead, full steam, with its legislative push, no matter the Janine operation, and so the Ben-Gurion demo would also move ahead. It was a great indication, one of endless and countless indications, that this current Israeli government doesn't care about anything other than completely upending the foundations of Israeli democracy and arrogating more and more powers for itself. Not security, not our boys in the IDF, not more pressing concerns like the cost of living and the spiking violent crime, just this one single issue at the exclusion and expense of everything else. This government is single-minded, focused, and driven. The Israeli public, I'd argue, needs to prove once again that it can match them. Let's get to Nimrod Novik and Ibrahim Dalalsha. Hi, Nimrod. Hi, Ibrahim. Welcome back to the Israel Policy Pod. Hello, Amiri. Nice to see you again. Uh, thank you all for being with us again uh, on this obviously very difficult week uh, with the major Israeli military operation into the Janine refugee camp uh, that began early Monday morning and ended uh, late last night. 
almost exactly 48 hours. Um, just wanted to sum up what happened and set the table for us. Uh, so all told, anywhere from 11 to 13 Palestinians were killed. Uh, the IDF maintains that they were all combatants. Uh, and you had also had over 100 others injured, including 20 seriously. Uh, on the Israeli side, one IDF soldier was killed in the late stages of the operation. Uh, extensive damage was caused to the camp. Roads, homes, water, and electricity lines severely impacted, uh, mostly due to heavy armored Israeli D-9 bulldozers tearing up the roads looking for IEDs, improvised explosive devices. And in terms of what Israel achieved, uh, the IDF says it found hundreds of weapons and explosive devices, uh, destroyed explosive laboratories and command centers, and perhaps most consequentially, removed that IED threat uh, to clear the way for likely future IDF incursions into the camp. We should also mention that on the sidelines to all of this, there was a car ramming and stabbing attack in North Tel Aviv yesterday, uh, with about four or five Israelis still in serious condition, and five rockets were fired overnight from Gaza at southern Israel, all intercepted. Okay, with all that said, Nimrod, let's start with you. Um, what, in your assessment, were the Israeli motivations behind this specific operation? It was obviously billed as a counter-terror operation coming on the back of a year-plus of attacks emanating primarily from the northern West Bank and especially the Janine region. So what do you think? Uh, yes, Neri. Uh, parallel to this year-plus that you mentioned of attacks emanating from Janine and its vicinity, uh, there was also a year plus of Israeli operations uh, in the area of uh, Jenin and its vicinity. Um, but uh, recently, there were a couple of uh, incidents um, that seemed to have uh, triggered uh, the recent operation, uh, yesterday's operation, the day before. Um, one was, um, there was an Israeli operation in Jenin two weeks ago that encountered something that we had not seen for a long time, or maybe ever, uh, in the West Bank. It was more Hezbollah-like, Hezbollah-style operation. And that was IEDs hidden underneath the asphalt of the road. Uh, the, and it was uh, a, com a combined uh, operation and, and, and a serious ambush, whereby once the first vehicle was hit and... Uh, uh, assistance uh, joined in order to uh, help uh, those injured, uh, secondary and tertiary IEDs were detonated. Uh, that sent a message uh, that uh, something is developing in, in Janine with capabilities that we had not seen before and has to be dealt with. The second thing, the second trigger, I would say, uh, was a, a terror uh, act from Janine uh, killing four Israelis not long ago. Um, and that basically triggered major political pressure from the extreme right members of the coalition who um, ran uh, in the elections uh, on the theme that they will bring order, they will bring security, they know how to deal with it. Uh, and they are facing a situation that they don't. Uh, they don't know how to deal with it. Uh, or maybe they're not uh, even making things worse. Uh, a, 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 an easy a proposition, uh, especially for those who have never uh, served in the military or and certainly not been exposed to national security considerations uh, in any serious way. So the political pressure uh, on the one hand uh, and the need uh, to uh, try and deal with the um, uh, increased capabilities built inside uh, the camp, the Janine refugee camp, uh, finally got the IDF uh, to agree to expand the operation, even though there was a reluctance to do so. Uh, there was a belief that the combination of uh, highly accurate uh, Shin Bet internal security intelligence uh, and uh, highly capable uh, IDF units uh, have been doing what can be done. Uh, so yielding to the pressure, yielding to the circumstances, there was a slightly uh, more expanded operation, but it is, uh, it's not a game changer. Okay, well, we're going to get into uh, the implications or maybe lack thereof of this operation in just a second. Uh, okay, Ibrahim, 
give us some context, if you could, about how exactly the Janine Refugee Camp came to be this uh, hub, whether in real operational terms or even just symbolically, of Palestinian resistance to uh, to Israel. Uh, and who are these militants and groups uh, actually working and operating inside the camp? First of all, I think it's, uh, you know, it's very important to put things in context. First, uh, the Janine camp uh, has always been, uh, you know, like a hotbed, a um, hard place, if you will, in terms of uh, militancy. And there are so many different reasons why that is. The case, if we go back 20 years to Defensive Shield, one of the biggest um, uh, combat areas uh, for the, uh, you know, uh, during that confrontation between the Israelis and the Palestinians, between the Israeli army and Palestinian gunmen, was also Janine camp, in addition to, of course, Nablus and other uh, places. Um, reasons go old, historic, symbolic, socioeconomic, but also political, domestic political issues. Uh, and problems mainly within the ruling party of uh, Fatah, where, where you have fragmentation and we, where you have field alliances that were built over years, not over uh, months or weeks, uh, you know, between the different factions, opposition factions, Hamas, Islamic Jihad, uh, and Fatah. And over time, you know, this uh, was emboldened uh, to the point that I think it shook the PAs, the traditional PA control over Jenin. And in fact, I think we had spoken before about the problems in Jenin and how weakened the Palestinian Authority uh, got to be in uh, in the camp and specifically, you know, in the camp, but even generally in the in the governorate of, of Jenin, the entire area of Jenin. Um, the so you know, like in addition to the fact that uh, you know there is, uh, I think, intensive effort on part of the opposition groups like Hamas, Islamic Jihad. Uh, to work and build their infrastructure in Jenin, knowing of the weakness within Fatah and within the Palestinian Authority, I, I simply think that, you know, the, the, the main reason goes back to the fact that there is uh, a serious uh, fragmentation within the Fatah leadership in Jenin, and that helped the opposition factions, you know, to build field alliances and stand up against the Palestinian Authority. Now, having said all of that, I have to also say that symbolically and historically, Jenin since the 30s of the past century have always been an area where, you know, like armed resistance and resistance against occupation and occupiers uh, is something that is, you know, indoctrinated in the local culture. So you have uh, also a wide base support uh, by the people and by the residents to the phenomena, if you will, of resistance, resistance to occupation, any foreign occupation. This was even during, again, the British mandate, this was, again, you know, during the Jordanian and now under the, the Israelis. So that's, that's symbolically. Uh, but more practically, I think it's, it's you know, you need to uh, focus on the fact that uh, the current, uh, you know, Fatah and PA leadership is actually losing control, not only in Jenin, but also losing control elsewhere because of domestic political reasons, uh, you know, within Fatah and within the general population vis-a-vis -vis the PA. Uh, and the fact that there is no political horizon, there are no negotiations going on, there are no hope for, for a better future. All of these combined, you know, created what I actually see as, uh, you know, gradual, uh, you know, PA losing control to uh, field formations. Uh, you know, strongest in Jenin, yes, local, local organizations stronger in Jenin, perhaps, yes, but, you know, it does exist in Nablus. Uh, it does exist in Pulkarim. It does exist even in Jericho. Uh, and we have seen it elsewhere. Now, it varies in terms of how, uh, um, how, how big it becomes and how defiant it becomes. Uh, and this is, you know, the reasons I mentioned earlier apply to Janine Camp. Okay, so Israeli intentions to at least do more on the counter-terror front, especially given the political pressure and political makeup of this government. And on the other end, uh, continued erosion of PA control, especially in places like Janine, uh, for all the reasons Ibrahim mentioned. And there's also, I'd argue, the international dimension, right, that uh, the U.S. and Jordan and Egypt really earlier this year tried to make an effort through the summits in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt, and Aqaba, Jordan, uh, to forestall precisely what we saw this week, which was a major IDF operation in the northern West Bank. Uh, so Nimrod, is, is this kind of the culmination or the low ebb of what Sharm and Aqaba 
we're trying to to remedy um can it be really late at the doorstep of the US Jordan and Egypt or was this almost inevitable given local political dynamics on both the Israeli and Palestinian sides it's the latter i believe uh, almost inevitable it's i would say not just uh, culmination uh, of uh, what happens with the current Israeli government, which is unique, unprecedented, so extreme. Uh, but it is the culmination of more than a decade uh, of a Netanyahu um, deliberate policy of winning, winning, weakening the Palestinian Authority uh, and strengthening Hamas. Um, so, you know, you do it and you do it and you do it. And one day it reaches its logical conclusion whereby the Palestinian Authority and its security forces are so discredited that they dare not enter uh, the Jenin refugee camp. As, and as Ibrahim mentioned, it's not just Jenin. So we have a situation where the IDF and the Shin Bet and the entire security establishment is really doing a tremendous job uh, within their area of responsibility. Uh, they provide the government with the space to change dynamics and to do try and do something different. Uh, but with what we see, what we saw over the last 48 hours is a brilliant tactical success uh, in the context the, uh, of, of, of uh, uh, a striking strategic paralysis. Um, the, it's the Einstein uh, formula. Uh, you keep doing the same and hope to, to get a different result. Uh, that's insanity. So when Netanyahu goes on the air in the wake of this operation and says, this is not the last one, and we're going to do it again and again and again, what you're seeing is him repeating on the West Bank the failed Israeli strategy on Gaza. And... Ibrahim, uh, given what Nimrod said and really the the thrust of the charm in Aqaba summits, uh, there's no conceivable world where the PA and security forces actually go into Janin on the back of this IDF operation, right? There are assumptions and, 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 and thoughts and ideas that I sometimes hear uh, on the Israeli side through media and some official statements. And frankly... Uh, again, the situation on the ground is quite the the opposite. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like today, uh, I think if you zoom in and look at what happened, you may understand some of the local dynamics there. As hundreds, in fact, of youth who attacked Mukata building, which is the main, you know, PA security building in Jenin, this morning it actually happened again in the presence of very senior PA and, and um and Fatah officials, and in fact, uh, I also heard that the prime minister who was on his way to Geneva to participate in the funeral had to turn back because he heard what happened with the with the other officials there. Uh, you know, yeah, so, uh, you know, they were going in solidarity with the camp, in solidarity with the people, you know, who were killed and their families, but still people did not receive them. Wow. And the problem there is not actually a problem. Again, the problem is not between gunmen and PA security forces because PA security forces outnumber gunmen. The problem is you have a wide popular support base for that phenomena, mainly in defiance against the Palestinian Authority and by extension Israel. And one of the maybe unfortunate things, but it's, it's, it's a reality, is that as much as Palestinians are impacted by internal domestic Israeli politics, in terms of how it shapes up governance and so on, and, and policies vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. Also, domestic Palestinian problems impact Israelis, whether they acknowledge, recognize that or not. And when we have internal so much domestic pile of internal and domestic problems, they reflect negatively on the, uh, you know, on the line that the PA tries to maintain against Israel, because the PA has, has not you know, changed its policy against Israel, but unable to enforce it the way it, it, it used to be uh, in the past, in the past 15 years. And I want to pick up on something that, if I may, just to, you know, like complete and circle, uh, the picture here uh, on uh, what Nimrod said, like, you know, the Netanyahu policy and leaving, you know, other Israeli right-wing uh, uh, new members of cabinet aside, the Israeli policy under Prime Minister Netanyahu for the past 15 years as he, you know, like since 2009 at least, 
uh, has essentially eroded not only PA's security capabilities, but also PA's uh, uh, legitimacy eroded over time because the PA is about, in the eyes of the Palestinian public, is the vehicle to actually move forward towards the political solution. In the, you know, like in the vacuum of a political stalemate, the PA is weakened, and then you add to it all the other problems that come in, settlement expansions and, and all of that, in addition to internal, you know, domestic, whether it's like corruption issues, socioeconomical issues, financial difficulties that the PA adds from. So the end result is a weakened PA that is unable to confront its own public. That essentially is the problem. Not only a problem that, you know, sometimes people only look at it from a security, understandably, you know, the most important aspect of it, um, but it's not the only problem. This is like the tip of the iceberg and not the whole problem. The problems are much bigger and wider and start with, you know, lack of political horizon and progress and, you know, statements about having to eliminate Palestinian national aspirations, as we heard this week, uh, from, you know, attributed to the Israeli prime minister, all the way down to internal, you know, Fatah ruling party problems. They connect together and you get a failed partner called the Palestinian Authority, if you look at it as only a sub-security contractor for the continuation of an Israeli occupation. Yeah, uh, it's remarkable the discourse that you often hear on the Israeli side where they they ponder and wonder why the PA and its security forces don't go into Janine camp and assert control. Uh, they never quite wonder why the PA would actually do that to get into a bloody confrontation with their own people um, in the complete absence of any real political horizon, uh, if anything, the political situation is getting more negative and they're becoming more legitimate. Uh, it's never quite taken into consideration Israel's role uh, in all of this. Uh, by the way, Ibrahim, did the PA and its security forces ever really have effective control over a place like the Janine refugee camp? It's not like they lost control of it. They never really had control of it, right? Uh, it, it, there were times, first of all, like, uh, you know, if we look at the second intifada period where there was a total loss of control over all areas, including Jenin. Um, and if you, if you take that as like, uh, you know, the uh, zero on a scale of one to 10 control, uh, you can actually say that since 2006, five, six, seven, all the way to 2015, you know, the situation was well controlled. Uh, in, uh, in in all of the uh, West Bank areas and, and Jenin included, and uh, even the refugee camp, including the re refugee camp, and maybe you know this would be a surprise to you that during the 2007 and 8 uh, security crackdowns in the in the West Bank, which came following the Hamas takeover of Gaza, many of the gunmen who were even including those who were wanted by Israel uh, during the Second Intifada were all recruited and you know, like trained and were enrolled in the Palestinian security forces, which actually strengthened them, uh, strengthened the Palestinian security forces control. And there was, and this was done with, in, a, in, a, in consent and agreement and coordination with the Israeli government at that time. Uh, and there was a special pardon program. Uh, and it's not a secret. This was like, you know, if you Google it, you'll see that the PA asserted control over those areas gradually out of the second intifada. And, you know, it, it has never been 100%, if you will. But, you know, on a scale of 10, of 0 to, to, uh, to 1 to 10, uh, you know, you could actually say that it got to be 8 and 9. And, you know, you know by the time, again, there, there were so many factors. And I'm not saying it's only Israel. I'm saying, you know, this political stagnation, settlement expansions, and all of the, you know, um, you know manifestations of continued occupation with lack of political horizon and hope. You know, in addition to the internal socioeconomic problems that you have in all societies, including the Palestinian society, you know, these things are also burden of the Palestinian governance and created a big, deep crisis, which was manipulated by opposition uh, groups, as I said earlier. And we ended up in a situation where the PA, you know, like effective security control over the entire West Bank, in my opinion, has actually been weakened with variations. Um, to where more militancy actually appears, you know, like in refugee camp, Jenin versus Akbal Jabir versus Nablus versus Balafa versus other places. Um, I wanted to get into the brass tacks uh, briefly of the operation itself. And Nimrod, uh, I mean, the basic question is, were you surprised by the relative, uh, I don't know if there's another word for it, there may be a better word for it, but the relative conservatism 
uh, of the IDF. They were, to my mind, uh, from the start, lowering expectations. Uh, this operation would be limited in both objectives and in time. And we really did see it on the ground. Uh, Slow-moving operation, methodical, uh, sporadic gun battles, 13 militants may be killed, uh, three dozen arrested, but out of likely hundreds uh, inside the camp. I was personally uh, truly expecting the worst uh, on both sides when uh, I woke up early Monday morning and saw the news that the Jinnian operation was underway. Uh, but what did you think just in terms of uh, the IDF side of this operation? I'd say that uh, from the IDF perspective, it was more yielding to political pressure than uh, operational considerations. So from the IDF perspective, it was, I would say, a bit more than more of the same. It was not the grandiose operation that the extreme right members of cabinet were advertising, pushing for, urging for, and even dubbed the operation as such, That's not the way the IDF planned it and executed it. It was, as I said, a bit more of more of the same, recognizing that anything far more dramatic risks a multi-front escalation, uh, both uh, in other uh, population centers, on the West Bank, possibly in Jerusalem, but certainly Gaza, South Lebanon, and possibly even southern Syria. Um, the IDF was not looking for it. Doesn't, the IDF didn't think uh, that it is an Israeli strategic interest or even a tactical uh, short-term security interest uh, to expand this into an all-out confrontation on all those fronts. Um, and therefore, it was designed meticulously for very specific and narrow uh, objectives, which have been accomplished, uh, but it was never uh, perceived by the IDF or Shin Bet uh, as a game changer. Okay. And just on the issue of uh, a multi-front escalation, we saw that uh, Gaza remained wholly quiet during the operation. Uh, they fired the rockets after the operation ended, uh, tellingly. Uh, most of the West Bank, on the whole, uh, remained relatively quiet. Uh, maybe some clashes outside Ramallah in the beginning of the operation. Uh, and obviously, southern Lebanon and Hezbollah uh, didn't fire either. So um, it's almost a dog that didn't bark, that nobody actually came to the aid of the Janine refugee camp. I, I assume I assume that credit goes again. Uh, <laughs> when one contrasts uh, the conduct of uh, of the political echelon of government with the conduct of the security establishment, uh, it is so striking uh, that the IDF Shin Bet have a clear picture. Uh, of what can, should uh, be done, uh, and they are carrying it out uh, with the kind of uh, precision and professionalism that one expects of them. Uh, But they cannot expect the current coalition to provide them with policy guidance, with strategic decisions, uh, that can contribute to changing dynamics on the ground for the better. Uh, if anything, then independent ministers are carrying out activities within their domain and otherwise that uh, exacerbate tensions on the West Bank, uh, increase Palestinian frustrations uh, as described by, by, by Ibrahim, um, emboldening settler violence, uh, increasing uh, settlement expansion, uh, daily decisions on more housing units, daily statements about no uh, political horizon of any sorts ever. Um, so, so, you know, Israeli defense policy is not detached 
uh, from Israeli domestic politics. I mean, uh, Kissinger once says, you know, that Israel has no foreign policy, only domestic policy. I'm not sure it's unique to Israel, but it's certainly true about Israel. Uh, but it's not just about uh, uh, foreign policy, it's also security policy. And when the prime minister is stuck uh, uh, regarding the legislation of, his, uh, uh, of, the, of the political overhaul, of the, politi- of the uh, legislative uh, coup, uh, against the Supreme Court and other uh, judicial uh, systems, um, he has to compensate his coalition partners by, by other things that are close to their hearts. And given the nature of the coalition that he formed, these people want most, for, first and foremost, uh, they want uh, uh, West Bank annexation one way or another. And if you cannot do it overtly because you have not been able to castrate the Supreme Court from preventing it, then you do it covertly, uh, uh, but uh, however covert, it is visible to the Palestinian eye, uh, it is visible to Abraham Accord signatories and other neighbors, it is visible to the international uh, community, and it is certainly destabilizing. Okay, we'll be right back after this brief message. Israel Policy Forum works to advance the vision of Israel as a secure, Jewish, and democratic state by strengthening support for a viable two-state outcome to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. We provide constructive policy analysis and pragmatic policy recommendations, produce credible research reports, deliver thoughtful and nuanced commentary, build engaging and innovative educational content, and create informational video content covering critical issues. We're trusted as a reliable resource in Washington and the Jewish community. To explore more of our work on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, U.S.-Israel relations, Israeli politics, Israeli-Arab regional integration, and the future of two states, watch our new series of short videos on how the judicial overhaul threatens Israel's status as a secure, Jewish, and democratic state, read the Koplau column, Chief Policy Officer Michael Koplau's weekly article on current events, read our timely written explainers on packing critical issues, explore our 50 Steps Before the Deal policy resource, or join one of our live video briefings featuring top journalists from the region. Links to all of these resources can be found in the description of this podcast. If you rely on Israel Policy Forum for credible, informational, and thoughtful analysis, please make a gift today to ensure that Israel Policy Forum's work continues to have an impact. Donate now at ipf.li slash support the pod or at the support the show link in the show notes. Ibrahim, I have a question about the operation from the Palestinian point of view, but wanted to give you a chance to answer the question. What what happened to the other fronts? Uh, why didn't the West Bank or other parts of the West Bank rise up in solidarity with with Janine? Uh, what happened to all the threats emanating from Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza? What happened there? Yeah. Yeah, no, I think, uh, first of all, I want to uh, second, uh, you know, like everything that Nebut said about this, and this is, I think, you know, First of all, it's, uh, it may sound weird coming from a Palestinian, but I tell you that, uh, you know, like everyone knows uh, that the uh, IDF capabilities uh, uh, are, uh, I mean, they were not even used or employed during the, uh, you know, the, the op- this uh, operation, which was from the beginning announced as a limited, large scale, but limited operation. In other words, you know, uh, if we compare this to Defensive Shield 2002 and what happened in Jenin camp, uh, this is uh, almost, almost in in certain terms, a minor operation compared to what happened then. And again, it just shows that the IDF's uh, um, uh, action in the camp was so careful and and planned in ways that do not really extend the conflict. Because answers to your question about what happened to the other fronts, I think you know the truth is that things started you know heating up and picking up momentum. Uh, you know, uh, including in areas like Ramallah, where we started to have clashes, uh, Bethlehem and other uh, places, uh, you know, and you had an attack, uh, you know, uh, attributed, contributed uh, to the, uh, um, uh, you know, the military operation in uh, Jenin, in, uh, which, you know, I'm talking about the ramming attack in Tel Aviv yesterday. So the longer and the more losses uh, there were, uh, the longer time the operation uh, uh, could have taken, uh, the more consequences, the more other fronts would have lit up. And and I think, you know, uh, one thing that is missing here is that it's a declared policy almost, if you look at all the ha- statements that ca- come from Hamas uh, about focusing, you know, their best efforts uh, according to their strategy in the West Bank rather than in Gaza. I mean, you know, I think, 
they have interests in Gaza, they have governance in Gaza, uh, they have things that they have gained uh, over the past, uh, you know, confrontations with the, with the Israeli governance of Gaza was not legitimate, i.e. Was not, Hamas was not accepted as a, as a legitimate governance force in 2007. And by now, and now it is, and now it is, and has interests to actually maintain and keep. So they don't really go on firing rockets every other time there is a problem in the West Bank. In fact, what they're trying to do is move the momentum of struggle and confrontations to the West Bank. And this, you know, to me, it didn't really come as a surprise that they would not really uh, fire any rockets. And frankly, you know, if you come to think about it, you know, firing those five rockets towards the road rather than anywhere else. Because in their eyes, there is, you know, a minor front and a major front. And, you know, to a minor front, the way that they actually see it in Zdorot, uh, was basically to appease some of the calls that were made, including in Jenin, that were made uh, basically demanding, you know, Hamas to, to retaliate. So I think, you know, where it actually starts and it, where it ends uh, was a very, where, where it started and where it ended in terms of the military operation itself also confined the reaction mm. because, you know, people are not on a switch. You know, you don't really go on off switch uh, with the, with the, uh, with wider confrontations, but it started picking up momentum yesterday. Like, you know, we had a total strike the first day of the operation. We didn't, by the way. Uh, and a strike is one side, one sign of actually public movement towards uh, you know, a confrontation. And then, you know, if it lasted for more and more days, then you would have seen more and more confrontations and frankly, even more and more attacks, I would actually even say. Uh, so, you know, the fact that it was done quickly, um, uh, you know, mitigated, controlled the reactions and put it, you know, uh, into, uh, you know, they were slower, if you will, but not that they wouldn't have reacted if it went, uh, you know, for, for, for longer time. On the, on the operation itself, if I may, I think from a from a Palestinian perspective, first of all, there were about thirteen yeah, thirteen Palestinians who were actually killed. In fact, twelve in Jenin and one in, uh, in outside uh, of Jenin. Oh. But you know, total total yes yes. But but you know, there were five minor you know like under age of eighteen uh, among them. Now, you know, from a Palestinian standpoint, those are like civilians. Those are like children that were killed. And you know, I, I think also. There is always a difference between how many, you know, like in terms of casualties, if you get high number of civilian casualties uh, uh, in, in any confrontation, whether it be in Gaza or in the West Bank, uh, you know, the public rage goes even higher and reactions uh, become even more uh, violent. Uh, when, you know, this was almost limited and the, uh, you know, to a confrontation between the two sides and or those who were, went out from their houses to fight the soldiers regardless of their age, I think, you know, that also had a different uh, sort of like uh, uh, dynamic. So I'm not, uh, you know, as a Palestinian, I can't praise the operation, obviously, and I don't really no. think that any, 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 any violence between Israelis and uh, Palestinians would ever serve anything. And, you know, I have to actually say that most of people who are actually engaged in fighting now with Israel are born after the year 2000. In other words, those, those, are, those were babies or unborn during the Second Intifada, which is the peak of Palestinian-Israeli violence in the past 20, 30 years since Oslo. And, you know, it's a, you know whether it will, the question on, on the Israeli side, whether it will achieve its aims and objectives or not, to me is like a repetition of all the same old tactics, tactical solutions to much bigger problems, even if they arrest and capture uh, and seize equipment and explosives, yes, it may have an impact for a week, two, three, month, two, three, one year, two, three, and we go back again where we started. So, you know, without connecting this whole situation into a track that takes us out of the conflict, I, I, you know, I see these are like, uh, you know, just tactical operations at the end of the day that did not really solve the problem. Um, just one thing that may um, um, encapsulate uh, the kind of planning that went into this operation uh, is uh, a fact that is uh, not widely reported, obviously, that during the operation, um, all close to 20,000 Gazans who work in Israel were allowed to continue, but even more... Uh, telling, um, residents of Jenin 
who've been, who had been uh, vetted uh, by the Israeli security agencies and allowed to work in Israel, were allowed to move to work during the operation. Right. Uh, it is telling, uh, the trying to maintain daily life and economic life for the vast majority of the Palestinian public and population, because uh, the Israeli security establishment at least understands uh, the importance of that. Um, yeah, it's a it's an important point. Um, again, it's an open question whether that would have or could have been maintained if the operation had gone on longer and if uh, we had seen more uh, a higher death toll on the Palestinian side and maybe uh, you know wider instability in the West Bank. Yeah, it's absolutely. an open question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. By the way, Ibrahim, uh, just a question to my mind, just in terms of the uh, operational decision making on the Palestinian side of the local militants, they chose not to actually and fully engage with the incoming IDF personnel, right? They, uh, they uh, for the most part, went to ground, went into hiding uh, very early in the confrontation. Uh, and there were sporadic gun battles, but not full-on firefights like maybe some of us uh, had expected given the uh, very uh, dense urban environment within all which all this was operating and being conducted in. So were you surprised that there wasn't a fuller engagement by the local gunmen with, uh, what, a thousand IDF personnel going into the camp? Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, speaking of telling, I think you know, it just shows you um, that basically those are not amateur uh, sort of like uh, kids with guns in the streets. Uh, we have we have that type uh, and we had that type. Uh, but I think here you're talking about more organized, more uh, trained. Um, and, you know, there are sometimes local announcements about showing them, you know, being, you know, like in training. Uh, communicating with other uh, forces, whether Gaza or elsewhere, uh, I think that the you know this operation in, in particular revealed that uh, you know there there is a new um, basically approach that they took, which is not to confront you know large forces of the IDF as they come in with drones in the air, you know helicopters in the air, and 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 soldiers you know in every other uh, corner of the street they took a different approach and they avoided immediate clash or direct clash uh, or clashes and confrontations and resorted to ambushes where they could uh, but the bulk of them had actually you know fled the camp area uh, to neighboring quarters and again because the the operation was centered in the camp those who managed to get out from the camp uh, you know stayed uh, un- unhurt uh, and that tactic, frankly, I think is new because in, in most other uh, other cases, they would go out to confront and shoot and then they would actually be gunned down easily and the death toll on their side would have been 10 times higher. Um, so I, I think it's telling in terms of how they're, you know, they're, they're organized, they're more trained uh, than uh, than previous uh, rounds or previous times. Yes. This is interesting. It's an interesting point. It's almost counterintuitive that you view it and understand it as a... a- uh, source of sophistication, yes, strategic sophistication on the part of the local uh, Palestinian fighters. Whereas, um, you know, they didn't. It wasn't just that they uh, kind of uh, went and hid and ran; that it was actually thought thought through. Yes, because there were ambushes during the. Uh, you know, there were attempts to shoot at the uh, the IDF by those who stayed in the camp or those who were actually on the outskirts of the camp. It wasn't like a total uh, clear area, and they vanished. The bulk of them went sort of like to, uh, 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 you know, to lines beyond the reach of the force of the idea of force that was focusing on the camp. But still, there was maneuvering and shooting in different areas, including the clash last night at the, as the IDF was actually pulling out and one Israeli soldier was killed in it. Uh, so, you know, like it's not it's not a situation where they completely vanished, but, they, you know, it, they use different tactics than actually going out and massively confronting. Uh, a large force, uh, you know, uh, like this, which would have, you know, caused high, high. Uh, so yes, it's a, it's a much, it's a more sophisticated. And I'm not trying, you know, like to say. Uh, I think that they have learned from experiences. I think that, you know, uh, they are also uh, being uh, uh, trained uh, by others who are more experienced, whether it's like Gaza or uh, other uh, other places. Uh, and it doesn't have to be physical these days, as you know. Uh, but essentially. Uh, I think that the um, 
uh, on the tactical level, they managed to absorb, uh, you know, like the the huge number of uh, soldiers and minimize uh, the, their casualties. And they see that as a end result, you know, like basically prevail. So they see that as a uh, as a triumph, uh, as as a victory, uh, having survived and minimized casualties and caused, uh, you know, uh, uh, casualties on the Israeli army side, despite its huge. Uh, 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 scale uh, operation and all the equipment uh, and, and, and support, air support that they had. And I can tell you that uh, a senior Israeli military official told me, I think the first night when I asked him why after whatever it was, 18 hours of fighting, there was only maybe seven or eight uh, Palestinians uh, combatants killed. Uh, and he had freely admitted that uh, the scale of engagement from the other side, from the local uh, militants was a lot less mm. than they had expected. Yeah, they had expected a a much fiercer uh, reaction. Uh, look, um, Neri, I, I I don't think that the IDF was was so surprised because the IDF gave up uh, on the element of surprise. Um, everybody in Israel was talking about it, from politicians to media to to commentators. Everybody was talking about the fact that uh, this operation was coming, uh, and the IDF could have. Uh, waited another couple of weeks, uh, if it so chose, um, and if it could resist the political pressure uh, from the politicians. But but Nimrod, but Nimrod, you missed you missed the uh, the crucial timing aspect of it, which was that it was launched on Monday, and the anti government protest movement had a big demonstration at Ben Gurion Airport on Monday. So absolutely, you know, absolutely. Why why waste absolutely. why waste that opportunity? That's right. I mean, why not divert attention uh, into a military operation? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be slightly less cynical about the motives behind <laughs> the operation. Uh, I attributed them to bad enough intentions of annexationists. That's, that's bad enough. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, there are suspicions that uh, the timing uh, uh, had something to do with the fact that the prime minister was about to face one of the most striking, dramatic and moving uh, demonstrations against his uh, policies. Uh, but but w- w- uh, what I wanted to, to, to mention is that as we piece together the elements of the Israeli uh, uh, IDF, uh, of the IDF uh, uh, approach to this operation, Every element of it suggests that they were not after the kind of a massive casualty triggering operation with tanks ramming the streets of Jenin, which none showed up. It was, it was really yielding to political pressure to do more when the IDF political uh, uh, professional judgment was that more was not essential. Okay. And Nimrod, uh, we'll use that as a nice transition, looking ahead. And so while Netanyahu and his government and his ministers talk a big game about uh, this operation changing the equation and that they're now showing a willingness to fight terror everywhere, um, what to your mind happens if there's another terror attack, say, this evening? Uh, even emanating from the Janine refugee camp, right? There's nothing stopping these hundreds of gunmen who who survived this two-day operation from picking up an assault rifle and uh, trying to go out and conduct a terror attack. Um, so do you imagine that we'll see follow-on and additional incursions uh, into Janine refugee camp maybe even in the coming week, two, or month? Uh, you know, in, in, in the context of a scenario uh, that you suggest when there is a trigger, uh, certainly, uh, but even absent uh, a trigger, um, as long as the government policy um, and the conduct of ministers, whether within government policy or just because of the chaotic nature uh, of this coalition, uh, as long as all that converges to accelerate tensions uh, on the West Bank, um, we're going to see more of the same. Uh, The IDF doesn't have, uh, you know, a silver bullet that changes uh, dynamics on the ground. 
Uh, we are grinding down the Palestinian Authority. Uh, I certainly agree with Ibrahim that the Palestinian Authority and the Palestinian leadership bears much responsibility for its miserable state. Uh, but we are the far powerful party, and we hold more of the cards than they do in terms of an ability to give it some space, to strengthen it, to empower it, and, and so on. And we're doing the opposite. Uh, so when you look at the dynamics on the ground, it's inevitable that the IDF will be called upon uh, time and again and again and again uh, to uh, deal with emerging threats or manifest threats, um, whereas the political echelon uh, is totally uh, uh, unwilling and incapable of suggesting an alternative strategy that will start changing dynamics on the ground from uh, instability and violence uh, to something else. Um, and Ibrahim... Turning to the Palestinian side and looking ahead, uh, we already touched on the issue of really growing anger and even protest on the streets by uh, the Shabab, by the youth uh, against the Palestinian Authority and uh, senior Fatah party officials, uh, real anger that they did nothing uh, to defend Janine. Uh, but we also had Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas uh, announce, I believe, what, two nights ago, a slew of decisions uh, against Israel. Uh, many, we have to say, that we've heard before, uh, like severing ties and including security coordination, uh, maybe uh, for real this time, although I have my doubts. So basically looking ahead, should we be concerned about both the stability of the PA and the, say, decisions that the PA may take uh, moving forward in the wake of this Janine operation? Um no, I, I don't really think that there is much worry uh, uh, warranted because of or as a result of the decisions that were taken by the leadership. As you mentioned, uh, most of these have uh, actually been articulated before. And I think this was, again, a collective articulation of everything that was said before. And even if you look at each and every one of them, you'll find you can trace it back to uh, earlier decisions. And the reason, you know, the, the PA is in a, such a difficult situation um, and had to basically make a new announcement uh, in light of the Janine operation, in light, in fact, of the uh, recent Israeli settlement, uh, you know, announcements. Uh, and by the way, I know firmly that, uh, uh, you know, th th that meeting was not supposed to happen. Uh, there were no decisions that were supposed to be taken. But after the Israeli military operation in Jenin, the PA basically leadership was pushed into a corner and had to uh, actually make those decisions. And of course, none of these decisions is imme immediately implementable, uh, and therefore there is a you know um, there is no intention on part of the PA to lead to further escalation, whether on the political front or on the security front. The problem that the PA is, fa is facing, however, is you know like there is no reciprocation. Uh, whether it's from Israel or the uh, U.S. Uh, or any other party who could come in and fill in, you know, uh, the vacuum in a real process. And by the way, when we're talking about political horizon, I hope that it's actually clear that we're not talking about, an, uh, you know, like entering into negotiations in two weeks and ending the Israeli occupation and creating the Palestinian state in a month's time. You know, we're talking about a process that actually gives life to the political dynamics between the two sides that gives life and meaning to the security coordination concept that strengthens the Palestinian authority, you know, like politically, security, and financially. And none of these elements are actually there for it. So, you know, the PA is you know, trying to survive the current, you know, situation without causing major losses and actually waiting for any initiative along those three lines I mentioned that could actually, you know, bring a better situation. Now, having said all of that, what I think is worrying is the fact that, you know, more and more resentment on the Palestinian street against the Palestinian uh, Authority uh, uh, leadership, as moderate, as pragmatic the leadership is, uh, is going to, uh, again, manifest itself in internal, you know, Palestinian-Palestinian problems that will always be deflected uh, on the Israeli side in terms of security attacks and in terms of, you know, more instability. And that's, uh, that, I think, is where Israel has to also face the question when you talk about strengthening the Palestinian Authority uh, as a viable partner, uh, 
minus a political process, there are also ways to do that. But the problem is, even that is not really being done. So when you spoke about, you know, the Aqaba and Sharm el-Sheikh, I think that, you know, one of the decisions of the of the PA were, uh, the, the leadership meeting were that, you know, invalidating or considering that these, uh, you know, uh, summits or meetings did not exist. The truth of the matter is there was no practical steps or outcome to those summits. It wasn't even <laughs> being implemented anyway. Exactly. So, yes. you know, it just shows you that the PA is just trying to rhetorically, you know, express frustration over over a stalled process, a completely stalled process. Now, the anger in the street and the frustration in the street is reflecting, you know, again, those were not Israeli officials who were basically out from Janine today. You know, those were like, you know, PA and Fatah. Uh, historic, you know, like historic leaders, basically people in the age of 70, 75 and 80 in a patrimonial society like ours, you know, youngsters should not be treating them like this, but everything is being broken. You know, like even certain societal values are being broken uh, in the form of anger and frustration, uh, you know, that is prevailing in the street. Uh, and therefore, you know, the, the I think the, the end result is the same. Uh, as uh, in terms of how Israeli policy and approach to the Palestinian situation need to be, uh, instead of using like tactical security and tactical economic and tactical financial solutions with the Palestinians, this needs to be broadened in ways where the approach becomes more holistic and the approach becomes more, uh, you know, like delivering uh, concrete outcomes and positive, basically, uh, results on the Palestinian side. Uh, if it stays like this, I think, you know, unfortunately that we will continue to go into these uh, ups and downs of violence depending on, you know, the uh, dicey and unstable uh, situation on the ground. Yeah, uh, that's a concern. And really, I have uh, zero confidence or hope that this Israeli government, uh, no matter what Netanyahu and his close advisors actually promise to either the Palestinians or the Americans or other regional Arab actors, uh, that they want to do in terms of strengthening the PA, I have zero confidence they will actually uh, implement it or, or can implement it given the makeup of their government. That uh, the fear is that even, and especially after this uh, operation in Janine, uh, that things will likely deteriorate further. Um, yes, yes, I, I agree. I, I, I agree with you. And the problem there is that, you know, we remain hostage to extremists on both sides, uh, whether it is you know, extremist Israeli ministers or, uh, you know, right-wingers or rejectionists or annexionists. Uh, And on the Palestinian side, we don't have a shortage of that too. The problem is that the PA is being pushed aside. Moderism is being pushed aside. Pragmatism is being pushed aside uh, and, you know, being undermined. And, you know, the ones who actually benefit uh, from uh, this in in very... uh, uh, weird ways are the extremists on both sides because they actually feed on stagnation. They yeah. feed on uh, instability. Uh, so that's the situation we're facing. Uh, you know, the only thing that we have to continue saying is basically, you know, the voice of reason needs to prevail. When it prevails is a different question, obviously. But, you know, in terms of progresses, I don't really see things changing. I agree with you. But the end result is going to be spirals of ups and downs of violence all the time. It's not going to be fixed by a military operation, uh, pretty much like, you know, the extremists on the Palestinian side thinking that with a shooting attack, they can change realities on the ground. That's not going to happen either. So, you know, so we, we remain hostage to this uh, sort of like, uh, you know, uh, uh, crazy, insane situation. Yes, it is a uh, crazy and insane. And uh, before I let you both go, Ibrahim, uh, from your understanding, who exactly now will rebuild and reconstruct the Janine refugee camp, uh, given the destruction, like I said, to, to the roads and the homes, um, who who's going to pay for this? Who's going to get it done? Uh, you know, <laughs> that's a very good question. First of all, I, th- I know that the Palestinian Authority has been actually inviting, extending invites to uh, diplomats and representatives of the donor community to visit Janine, uh, and I think there is something you know that is being arranged uh, for for you know on, on that uh, front. Uh, the other part, of course, you know, the, you have certain parts inside the camp. And you have certain parts that are outside the camp. So the you know, in a technical, technically speaking, UNRWA is in charge of the, and responsible for the refugee camps, uh, and the Janine municipality uh, uh, and the PA uh, Ministry of Local Governance is in charge of the of the city and the surroundings of the camp. Um, right, but so but neither, you know, like, but neither uh, the PA yeah. 
Neither the PA nor UNRWA have any money. Nor UNRWA. <laughs> That's exactly, <laughs> I think, is going to be the problem. Uh, and therefore, uh, you know, I think that the PA, the immediate thing that they thought of is to actually take uh, donor community. I'm not sure, you know, given the dynamics in the camp that it would actually take place tomorrow or the day after. But I think, you know, I, I, the P, I know firmly that the PA is actually working on that, trying to get them out there and show the donors maybe, you know, they, uh, they'll be able to get some uh, contributions to fix that. At the end of the day, I, I, you know, even if it takes longer, I think it will actually be fixed. You still have Arab countries uh, who are interested in uh, providing uh, such contributions, not cash assistance to the Palestinian Authority, but basically taking up projects like these, you know, fixing uh, uh, networks and uh, infrastructure, uh, electricity, water pipes, everything that was destroyed during the uh, the current operation. Yeah, I think, the, you know, I, I think the situation is not as dire as, you know, uh, that it will be abandoned uh, entirely. I think it may take some time, but eventually it will be fixed. Okay. Um, that's good to know. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, and with that, uh, Ibrahim Nimrod? Thank you so much uh, for taking the time to break it all down with us in this uh, semi-emergency podcast episode on this, uh, uh, well, thank emergency, you, emergency week. So thanks again. Thank Larry. Thank you, Ibrahim. Good to be with you all, always. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Nice always to be with you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks again to the great Nimrod Novik and Ibrahim Dalalsha for their generous time as always. Also, special thanks to our producer, Jacob Gilman, and to all of you who support Israel Policy Forum's work, including this podcast. You know who you are. Just remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a rating and comment. That always helps. And as always, thank you for listening.